This is Joshua Bell with The Kilt and the Cloth. This was my sermon from October 17th entitled, Jesus the High Priest Superstar. I hope you enjoy, and God bless. My scripture this morning is taken from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. If you'd like to follow along as I read aloud, it's found in your Hugh Bibles on page 205 in the New Testament section. Every high priest chosen from among mortals is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He is able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is subject to weakness. And because of this, he must offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as for those of the people. And one does not presume to take this honor but takes it only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but was appointed by the one who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. May God bless the reading of God's holy scripture. Amen. Again, it's hard for us as we talk about Jesus as a priest because we're, we're Protestants and we struggle with that language, the terminology. But in this moment, I want you to remember who this book is being written to specifically the Hebrew culture, the Hebrews. And for them, there was not a problem to have a priest. For them, it was who was the right priest. Jesus is considered by many throughout history and antiquity that he was considered to be a prophet. They list him as the high priest and in some aspects as a king. In this particular moment, Jesus is portrayed as the great high priest who on one hand, parallels the general characteristics of the many high priests that had gone before him, but yet one who knows no equal. Like them, Jesus shares his humanity and thus a certain kind of mortality. And like other priests, Jesus is appointed rather than, a, and than aspiring to the office as other high priests have done. Obviously, there's a story that we don't know about that this person is insinuating so Jesus also can establish, uh, identify with the weakness of humanity. You know, we're prone to words, actions, and ambitions that establish our little kingdoms rather than God's. But as the fulfiller of his highly priestly appointment, he has been honored as the source of eternal salvation. So let's think about this for a second. 
Talk about the high priest. The high priest was the one person in the Jewish culture that was the only person allowed to walk into the Holy of Holies. And in that place, this person would give the sins of Israel, and then God would, some sort of, some way, uh, wash them away from Israel in a, in a burnt offering. So the way that you want to think about it is, is the high priest would have a bucket. And this is really blasphemous, but it's the only way I can think of it. He has a bucket full of ashes from all of the burnt offerings. And he carries it because he's the only one that's allowed to go in the Holy of Holies. Because if you stepped into the Holy of Holies, you would die. If you all remember the story, I asked my dad, what happens if a bug flies into the Holy of Holies? He says, we don't know. It just, poof, it's gone. You know, it's just, so the high priest is the one that God has chosen for the whole people of Israel. And they walk into the Holy of Holies and they dump the ashes as quickly as they can, say the prayer, and then get pulled out. You're like, pulled out? Well, yeah, the high priest had a robe, uh, had a rope tied to the right ankle that had bells on it. Because sometimes, well, I want you to think about this, sometimes the high priest might be of a certain age. And it's possible that they tripped and fell when they came into the Holy of Holies. Or sometimes they might have dropped it, and so they would ring the bell so somebody would pull them out of the Holy of Holies because you couldn't go in there to save them. And sometimes they left the rope just to kind of mess with the priest, I think. But in all seriousness, this Holy of Holies was not something that just was taken lightly. The high priest was somebody that was of great distinction, but it was not something that they got to choose to do. It was appointed by the people. There are lots of people that want to be appointed to high positions. I have to admit in my own uh, humility that when I first started out in youth ministry a while ago, I remember that the church in Oklahoma gave me my very first ministerial license, my license, and the ministers at the time, especially the regional ministers, would say, Josh, you need to go to seminary. And I'd be like, I don't want to go to seminary. I'm not ever going to be a senior minister. Yep, just think about that for a minute. And I would say to them over and over again, I don't need to go to seminary because I've been called by God. And who are you to question my calling? I could be referred to as um, passionate, um, super confident in myself, or stupendously ignorant. And what I didn't understand was, is the idea was is that it wasn't about me becoming a preacher. It was is that they wanted to help educate. They wanted to help enrich. They wanted to help uh, guide me into a place that as I was, as they saw in me, led to lead a, a, a group of people that I had to hear the voice of God in the right way, not the voice that was telling me in the back of my head that I'm super awesome and everybody should just be glad that they're working with me. There's something beautiful about the way this writer is lifting up Jesus as the high priest, something that humans cannot do. The text gives us answers to this. In the first verse, <clears throat> It tells you what the high priest does. It's not a whole lot. They are appointed to officiate on behalf of others in matters relating to God. To offer the gifts and the sin offerings on the people of Israel. 
In verse 2 and 3, it says, Human frailty allows for intimate identification between priest and people, but such identification requires that the priest cover his own sin. A contrast to Jesus as high priest because he is without sin. Verse 4 and 6 are very adamantly saying this out loud. They, are, they must be called by God. So Jesus is called to as a priest by God, high priest by God. And they use Psalms 2 and 110 to connect Jesus to the divine sonship or the connection between God and child. The status which qualifies Jesus not only to be a priest, but it, that it accomplishes his saving work. That what he does is not without vain. And then my favorite part, this is the Greek part. In verses 8 through 10, the writer has this really cool wordplay about Jesus' life. In verses, uh, at the very beginning, it says, Jesus learned, but that word is imathen. And it's fascinating because it's only used when you're teaching a child something. So Jesus had to have learned, and then the writer then puts in, through what he suffered, ipothen. So now you have imathen, how Jesus learns, and you have to learn how he learns from suffering. <gasps> Wait a minute. Jesus reached the summit of his obedience through his suffering, and in the process, fulfills a divine plan. Now this is uncomfortable. How do we know that God is real? That's the question, right? That's what we search for every Sunday. How do we know that God is real? Anyone that has suffered, anyone that understands that suffering is not something that you can do by yourself, has felt the presence of God. Not usually right away. But over time, you, you feel bits and pieces of that pain and that sorrow start to slowly wash away, but it's still there. You know it's there. And eventually, at some point, we hope that in the midst of that suffering, it gives us hope. Because we hope that God will take it away from our hearts sometimes. And it, it, sometimes it works. You know, humans, we, we struggle with this idea of what suffering is really about. Suffering is not saying, I didn't get to have a Butterfinger candy bar today. Suffering is something that deeps deep inside of our soul. And how do we know that God exists? Because at the end of the day, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. There's a tunnel. Literally, for God's sake, we can see it. At the end, there's this light. And we just keep trudging along and trudging along and trudging along, reaching for that light, knowing that God has provided that. How? Through Jesus Christ. And in that suffering, God brings us out of that. And that's where we find hope. It's easier said than done, though, right? It's easy for us to say these things. But it's in that message that we, we have to have community. You cannot do this by yourself. One can suffer alone all day long. 
But how do we find hope? In the 815 group, I, I remember, I, you know, I say to you all the time, for five years I've said it over and over again, that our job, our mission as church is to be non-anxious presences in a world full of garbage. Right? I put garbage in the aspect of hate, and anger, and discourse, and just, just trying to cause problems. And our job as Christians, once we put that mantle on, is to be this non-anxious presence. Well, how do you do that? It's a really nice phrase, Josh. I mean, it's really great that you learned that in seminary and from your parents. But how does one become a non-anxious presence? By living as a human in the same way that Christ did. What did Christ do that makes him human? When people were suffering, he offered them sympathy. You know, we do that as a church. When we've lost something or we've lost someone, the church offers sympathy. We don't always do it well. But that becomes our goal, right? Then what else are we supposed to do? We're supposed to empathize. Now, we, we struggle with this because I cannot empathize with your pain. Your pain is genuinely yours. But my pain can be similar. Right? Here's the hard one. This is the one that stinks. What is it that Jesus does throughout the whole time of his ministry? He forgives. I mean, ultimately, the writer here in Hebrews is wanting you to understand that not only does he forgive, he forgives all, and he takes on all of your sins, just like the high priest. He just doesn't have a rope tied to his ankle. He's taken away all of your sin. He has forgiven you, and you have to forgive yourself. And you have to forgive others. Thanks a lot, Jesus. When Jesus says to love your enemies, he's literally meaning in the sense of, you have to love them because they're a child of God. Now you don't have to be nice to them all the time. Doesn't say that in the fine print. You have to love them because they're a child of God. God does the forgiveness. How do we know that? Because of Jesus, our priest superstar. Huh. Maybe, maybe you do it just like Jesus and you invite someone before God in prayer. I don't know if you've noticed a theme, but it's important that we invite people to worship whether it's online or in person. The objective here is, is that you become the image of Christ. You're the ambassador of all of these things. You become hope through your own suffering. Now the writer here is brilliant. He connects Jesus to us. He's saying that Jesus had to suffer as a human being just like you so that he could be there for us. And then when he goes away, he leaves you to continue that work. You can't do this simply, right? You have to do this in a way that is not alone. And it's hard. God knows us intimately and fully. And yet, Christ still represents us. 
and forgives us before God for everything, even the things that we don't know that we did. One commentator writes, Hebrews has thus far drawn from the life of Jesus two certain central messages. As in one, every respect, just like us, his brothers, his sisters, he's able to serve as our priest with sympathy and patience. And as one who experienced life as we know it with faithfulness and full obedience, he is the pioneer and model for the Christian pilgrimage. As a priest, his sympathy flows out of his being tested as a human being, not out of failing the tests. Therefore, his being without sin is not erosive of the capacity to be touched by our weakness. If he is the model, his faithful obedience through suffering qualifies him. This is to say he lived his own life and faced his own struggles and therefore doesn't just can be the model but becomes the model for us to represent our lives. So what does this mean? What does the life of Jesus mean for the life of faith? If the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus, as Paul insists, is all that precedes his death not gospel? Or are Jesus' healing, feeding, receiving, forgiving, loving, and caring also gospel? The writer of Hebrews is not only offering a, a way of reading this moment of Jesus, but also by doing it, it presses us to think through it again and again and again. Who is it that we follow? Is Jesus our actual model? Or the one that we talk about? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.